as each and every word makes its way into our mind, into our heart. We're staggered by the greatness of your plan for your creation and and how all of that makes this seismic impact upon not just human beings, but all time, all eternity is impacted by this. We pray that we never get to the place, Father, where we are bored by the Gospel. It's our prayer, Father, that we we never get to the place where the Gospel becomes cliché. That we, like the angels, will long and desire and yearn to, to gaze upon the greatness of Your act of mercy and love and compassion, the giving of of salvation to us as a, a grace, a gift free of charge through faith. We pray, Father, that, that we are overwhelmed to the point of worship. That we are saturated with the greatness of Your love to the point that we praise and adore You, Father, with all that we are. Thank You for these words, these ancient words of Paul to us. We pray that You will give us eyes that see them and ears that hear them in such a way that we are changed. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians is a really important letter in the New Testament in helping us to understand what the church is all about. And chapter 3 is, in particular, a very important chapter in understanding a, a good many things about the Christian faith. But there are some difficulties in terms of of trying to read through it and sometimes trying to preach it because smack dab uh, there at the very beginning of it, there at the end of verse 1, is a sidebar. You'll notice in your text, in your Bible, that there is a a dash. And that dash is there to mark that there's a change in the language, a change in Paul's thought that all of a sudden he decides to run with this this sidebar, this, this aside, and he rambles through it for about 12 verses or so, until he gets to verse 13, where we see the word therefore that points back to everything that Paul has written until that point. Now, what is it that gets Paul off track there for a moment as he, as he is writing about the greatness of the church? What it is that gets him off track and, and where he feels that he needs to, to get into this, this sidebar, this, this, uh, this, this side point, is the reality of his suffering. The reality that he's in prison, the reality of his suffering in light of the greatness of the gospel. Why is he going to break off then? It's because of this fact, life is hard. We're going along in life. You, I, everybody in this room, we're going along in life. And then all of a sudden there's a setback. Something truly unexpected happens. And if we are not prepared for it, then it is going to be a setback to our faith. And our faith is going to be impacted in some pejorative ways by it. That's why when Paul writes Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, notice what he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. The prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the church about being in prison, and then he's struck with a thought. If I'm in prison, and this is going to my friends, then when they read that this is my state, this is where I am in life, then they might be a little bit discouraged. 
And that's why he goes on this 12-verse sidebar that ends in verse 13 when he says, Therefore, I'm going to ask you not to lose heart. Verse 1, I'm a prisoner for Christ. Verse 13, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they're your glory. Why does Paul do this? Why does Paul kind of go off on a tangent for a little bit? It's because Paul knows his imprisonment is a huge discouragement to his friends. He breaks off and he encourages them with thoughts, sort of driving them deeply in their thoughts and his thoughts into his own imprisonment. Now stepping back and looking at that, that's one of the reasons why the Bible is such an incredibly realistic book. It doesn't back away. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't sidestep the fact that at times life is hard. And at a, 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 in great portions of life, suffering is incredibly profound and inevitable in that life. And it's not just something that happens to people who are making bad decisions. But this kind of setback, this kind of suffering, happens also to the good and sometimes to the best of people. They are going to suffer too. Suffer disappointments. Go through a period of time where tragic events are unfolding in life. Where we find ourselves saying, you know, I didn't think that my life would take that kind of a turn. Or at this point in my life, I didn't think that I'd have to deal with this sort of thing. Or I never in a million years expected this kind of thing to happen to me. And that's what makes the Bible realistic. It is unflinching in telling the truth about what life is like in the fallen world as well as the Gospel's impact on life in a fallen world. I notice that one of the things that Paul does here, you know, he, he writes, he's in prison. He is, in, he is a prisoner. And he, he realizes that when he writes that, there are going to be some folk that are going to be mighty discouraged by it. But notice that Paul does not say you need to suck it up or to get over it or to get in gear or to just ignore it and just move on. He doesn't deny it at all or repress it. Paul is very realistic. Once the thought of his imprisonment discouraging his friends, enters his mind, what Paul does is begin to draw them into the very subject, the very center of that subject himself. Why? Because he realizes that suffering, suffering probably more than anything else in life, can shake a person's faith. In Matthew chapter 11, you have this very uh, endearing, I I shouldn't say endearing, endearing, it's a very poignant uh, event in, in the ministry of Jesus and the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been thrown in prison. And he knows that, that maybe he is going to die. And Matthew tells us that there comes this day where Jesus receives these emissaries from John the Baptist and they say to Jesus, or they ask him of a question put to them by John, are you the one that we should be looking for? Or should we look for someone else? If you are really the Son of God, uh, give us an answer that we may take it back to John. Now, why is John sending his disciples to Jesus to ask that kind of question? Are you the one? Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for somebody else? What is your answer? Why is he asking that? Because he's experiencing doubt. And why is he experiencing a little bit of doubt? It's because if Jesus really is the Son of God, then why is your servant John in prison about to die? That's what suffering does. It knocks us off balance, at least for a little while. 
It causes us some pain. It affects our thinking processes. We begin to doubt. We begin to be discouraged. And it shakes our faith. That's why Paul writes in verse 13, do not lose heart. That's what discouragement does. Discouragement takes the heart right out of you. And that discouragement does it especially when it's your friend who's suffering. You know, sometimes the worst kind of suffering we experience is the suffering we see a loved one go through. And that discouragement is profound. And that, and that discouragement is, is, is deep. It can take your heart out and bitterness becomes a possibility for your life of faith. So Paul helps them out because discouragement is a big deal in the faith. And so how does he do it? How does he help them to deal with the discouragement that might be coming their way because they hear he's in prison? Well, he does it by talking to them about the wonder of grace. There is a word that shows up a couple of times in, in, in this chapter. In chapter 3, verse 3, verse 4, verse 9, it is the word mystery. Now, what does the word mystery mean? Well, when you hear it, you automatically think, I think, of something that's opposite of what Paul means by it. Normally, we think of a whodunit. It's something that we have to figure out on our own using our own rational abilities. Ellen and I, one of the things that we love to do in the evening when we get home and we're just together by ourselves is to turn on the television and, and watch the, the British mysteries. We like Foyle's War. We like Inspector Lewis. We like Endeavor. And we try to figure out by the end of the show the, the, who is guilty of the whodunit. But this is not how Paul meant it. Paul did not mean it in the Agatha Christie mystery kind of way. Mystery in the Bible is something revealed that you would never have discovered on your own. Let me say that again. When Paul writes or talks about a mystery in Ephesians or Colossians, mystery in the Bible is something revealed that you would never have discovered on your own. In fact, it's something in many ways that's counterintuitive. That a human being is not going to get there by the normal cognitive, rational, logical processes. So what is specifically this mystery that Paul is talking about? Well, Paul uses the word mystery with another word that appears a few times in Ephesians in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6. It is the word gospel. Now, to, to understand, I think, what Paul is trying to get at here. It's very easy sometimes for us as human beings to think that the way that we are saved is by the kinds of things that we will do ourselves, that earn our salvation, that by works we're going to be able to prove ourselves good or, or righteous in such a way that we're going to be accepted. But you'll notice that when you get to the Bible, the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, these kinds of things are never called the Gospel. You can try to live by them to save yourself, you can try to live the Ten Commandments. You can try to live the Golden Rule in a way that tries to save yourself. But in the end, it will crush you. The reason is because you cannot do it perfectly. The mystery is that the Son of God became flesh and triumphed through suffering and weakness over our sin in order for God and man to become united as one. It's His gift. It's His grace. It's, it's something that you cannot do by works. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And then in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 4, he says, by referring to this, then you can, re you, 
uh, then you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the what? Body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the mystery is that Christ won by losing. The mystery is that we live because He died. The mystery is that we are embraced because He was forsaken. The the mystery is that we are blessed because He suffered. And the mystery is, is that we are all united in the faith through Christ by what He accomplished on the cross. In so many ways, that is so counterintuitive. I mean, it's just... Common sense to think that if you live a good life, you're going to go to heaven. That's common sense in America today. Conventional wisdom is all people go to heaven. It's, it's, it's Phil Donahue talking to Billy Graham on his, in his show back in the 80s saying, Dr. Graham, isn't it true that in the end, in the very end, that we all get in? It's so counterintuitive that Christ would do what we were unable to do in love. To die in our stead in order for God and man and for Jew and Gentile to become one. It is absolutely an amazing thing. The gospel is an astonishing, counterintuitive wonder. And how he illustrates just how important that is for us to get our minds around. The next thing he talks about is how the church is, in a manner of speaking, a window. Now, I stole that from Marcus Bart. In his commentary on Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about how the church becomes a window. In verses 7 through 9, Paul writes that he was given the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of the gospel to the Gentiles. He then writes in verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be known through the church. It's a very unique phrase in Paul's writing, through the church. In fact, I think it only appears here that through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God is known. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that eternal purpose, He's already stated in chapter 1, verse 10, the summing up of everything in Christ to bring it all together. Now, one of the main facts of life is that things fall apart. Uh, You don't drive a car for very long without it beginning to fall apart. And if you drive it for a long, long time, it's going to completely fall apart. Things fall apart in life. Things fall apart in this fallen creation. And when you think about it, what, what is racism and what is war and what is violent crime? Is it not, in essence, people who should be together at each other's throats? Things that should be together are coming apart at the seams, whether they're relationships or it's a society or it's even a nation at times. Now, as we've talked the last couple of Sunday mornings uh, in talking about God and creation, God created, the, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit created everything to be in harmony. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are circling one another. There's that perfect harmony. There is that perfect trinity. They cohere. And when God expanded the circle in creation, 
He created everything to be in that same kind of harmony, to cohere in the same kind of way. That when our bodies were first built and created and God breathed life into our nostrils and we became a living nephesh, that is, a living soul, our bodies were to stay together. We weren't supposed to die. Die is the, death is that terrible intruder into God's good creation. Our bodies are to stay together, not fall apart. But then the sin does enter. And everything does begin to come unraveled and to fall apart. Disease is what happens when our bodies are no longer cohering. Death is the ultimate non-coherement of our bodies. But God in Christ is bringing everything back together again forever in Christ. Now, how does the world see God's incredible good news? How does, how does the world have a, a foretaste? How, how does the world, how does the community that we live in see in the most clear way the power, the astonishing wonderment of the Gospel? It's through the church. He says, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. It, it's through the church that people are able to see how folks from, uh, from across the tracks, from both sides of the tracks, are able to, to be together as one. How Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, as Paul would talk about it in Galatians chapter 3, how people who may never speak the same language at the same level can still be brothers and sisters in Christ because they have been made one through the cross of Jesus. It's through the church. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just the communities. It's not just the people in our neighborhoods. It's not just the world at large that looks at the church and gets an understanding of what the purpose of God is in Christ, and that is to bring everything, up, uh, bring, to bring everything together in Christ. But it's even the invisible world sees the demonstration of God bringing healing to the world through the church. That's why the church is indispensable. Even in an independent, badge-wearing society like our own, the church is indispensable. That it's, that it's not just that the world begins to get a foretaste of what the gospel, the, the healing that God is bringing to the world through seeing the church come together in relationships of oneness with one another, but even... The angels, both fallen and, and faithful, see the greatness of the gospel. The faithful in seeing the love and the compassion and the mercy of God. The fallen in seeing their defeat in that God, through Christ, is undoing the results of sin by bringing all of these diverse people together as one. The grace of God, the gospel of God, the cross of Christ is the undoing of the effects of sin. And people in the world see it through the church. Therefore, suffering is not in vain. Paul doesn't say that he's a prisoner of, of Rome. He doesn't say that he's a prisoner or Satan. He doesn't say that he's a prisoner of anyone else but Jesus of Nazareth. Which is kind of, of an amazing perspective. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about, you, you know, there, there are so many people out there, he writes, that are, are trying to, to uh, throw a bunch of 
of uh, disclaimers out there on my message, on my ability to communicate. He says, you know, that stuff doesn't really matter. You know, in my weaknesses, I'm really strong. And then in second, towards the middle of 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about the fact that he's been in prison a couple of times and that he's been beaten quite frequently, that he's been in danger of death. He's been stoned there three times. He's been shipwrecked five times. He's received 39 lashes at the hands of the Jews. And he just goes on and on and on and on. And he says, you know what? I'm not discouraged by any of this because it's to the glory of God. Jesus taught on the side of a hill towards the beginning of His ministry that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be as well. And somewhere on that road to Damascus, Christ through the Gospel became Paul's treasure. And he understood what it meant to be redeemed. And he knew what it meant to be freed from his enslavement to sin. And he knew what it meant for him to be saved, for all of his sins to be forgiven, for all the price that of his guilt to be paid before a righteous and holy God. That it had been paid through Christ on the cross. And that changed everything. The Christ, through the Gospel, became Paul's treasure. And the angels, both faithful and fallen, were amazed, I think, at how Paul weathered his bad times in faith. You know, I know it's, it, it's, it's sometimes easy to think that when suffering or some tragic or unexpected event comes into life, to think that God is not watching or that, that maybe you know, we're getting something that uh, is, is uh, the result of, of a life that is not lived well. You know, the bottom line is, is that sometimes you don't know why suffering comes into your life. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But there is a way to weather it in such a way, in, in such a way through the faith of the knowledge of what it is that we have gained through Christ at the cross. That the Gospel changes the way that we look at everything. That our heart is where our treasure is. That we are, are seated. He will say it in, in Colossians that, that part of the mystery of the Gospel is the hope of glory in us. That we are seated at the right hand with Christ at the right hand of God. And that regardless of what comes into this life, that we can live in such, a way, in such a way with patience and poise and buoyancy when those tragedies and those sufferings come, that when people see us, they see the beauty of the Gospel of Jesus in us. We'd like to offer an opportunity for you to respond to that Gospel. As Ben sings, uh, leads us in the singing of this next song, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. The spiritual leaders of our church family, the elders of our congregation are going to be down here at the front. And they'd be more than happy. They would be over, overwhelmed with joy at the prospect of sitting down and sharing with you the thing that changed their life. Not just their life, but Paul's life. And not just Paul's life and their life, but all, every person who calls upon the name of Jesus in this congregation. How we are different because of the good news, because of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. And if that describes you tonight, you know, it's a very, it's a very simple process. You come to a point in your life where you realize that, that you are not going in the direction of God, that your life is going in the opposite direction of God, that all of your life has been in rebellion to the Creator, the One that made you, the One that breathed life into your nostrils at the very beginning of time. And that because of that, life has not been very good. There's been a lot of chaos. There's been, there has been a lot of... Tra and it's all 
because you live in rebellion to Him. And through the confession that you're going the opposite direction towards Jesus as Lord, as God, the God in, uh, of your life, you make that turn and through faith in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, you are baptized and you participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That as He died to sin, so you too in burial in the water are dying to sin. And as He was raised up to newness of life, you too are raised up to newness of life. It is a, a participation in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at the cross. And from that point on, God puts His Spirit in you. And you begin to live in the community of faith, becoming one of those, like all of us, who have been summed up, everything together in Christ for the rest of our life, walking with that Spirit, being transformed, being sanctified, becoming like Jesus in all that we do. And experiencing the greatness of the blessing of being a disciple of Jesus. If that describes you tonight as someone who's wanting that kind of life, that, that kind of relationship with God to become a part of God's family, then what we're going to ask you to do is we sing the song of praise to God. You come and talk to our shepherds. Let's stand and sing together. Would you be poured out like